Hello and welcome to our new class. This is uh, really exciting. There have been sort of rumors. This has been a finalist before, and uh, I, you know I've um, I've been um, uh, looking forward to this possibility for a while. *La Morte d'Arthur* by Sir Thomas Mallory, one of the great classics of medieval literature, won our Mythgard Academy election this past time. So we are going to begin tonight our reading art through the unabridged *Morte d'Arthur* by Sir Thomas Mallory. This is going to be great. This is going to take a while, uh, but it's going to be it's going to be it's going to be great fun. Um, first, can I start off with a funny story? Uh, so I was, uh, as usual, we're simulcasting this. The 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 primary uh, uh, sort of broadcast is on our through our go to webinar channel, as it's always been for years. Uh, and that's where, by the way, if you're watching and you see me like reading out things, comments that people are making and stuff, it's the people who are in the go to webinar session uh, uh, that I'm reading. Though I do have Twitch chat open as well, so if you're joining live on Twitch, I can see what you're saying there as well. Hi, Torlaniel and Druid's Fire and Crystal A. When we've already posted. There, so, so that's also okay. But uh, it's primarily going to be the go-to webinar chat that I'm monitoring. Anyhow, so I was setting up the Twitch broadcast, right? And there's a there's a a, a message that you send out, right? You know, the, the the notification message that goes out to subscribers to the channel that we're going live. So I typed something in Middle English in that, and Twitch rejected it. <laughs> they rejected it on spell check principles <laughs> because there were like eight words uh, which were which were not spelled correctly in modern English and had little red lines under them, and it wouldn't put it through. Like it wouldn't let me save it. It was it was like it. it, it gave me a little angry little message in red print. It was like, don't type like you would type to your grandma. And I'm like, dude, this is how I would type to my grandma's distant ancestor. But anyway, that was really, really funny. Um, <laughs> so, you know, what can we do? Uh, that was, uh, that's, uh, and, and that, by the way, I've never had that happen to me before, but it's, uh, it's a fairly common problem. Um, the, uh, that is to say, the um, uh, when you're doing working with Middle English stuff, anytime you're writing in word processors or whatever, uh, you know, you usually just have to turn spell checker off uh, because it's it's a great hindrance rather than a help, uh, and your your page will just be a massive red in front of you. Uh, and if you've got autocorrect on, oh man, the comedy, <laughs> right? So anyway, good times. Um, Okay, so I've got a whole bunch of things to tell you about uh, today, and I'm not even talking about uh, like regular announcements. Like you know, I usually start my session announcing big, awesome things that are going on in the Mythgard world, like I'll do in 20 seconds. Uh, camps, summer camps going on. Hobbit camp has begun. Harry Potter camp starts next week. Go to signumuniversity.org/academy to find out everything about it because it's not too late to join. And next month, August 18th, is our next regional moot, which is Bay Moot in the San Francisco area in California, uh, located specifically in Oakland. The schedule is now posted. Go to signumuniversity.org. Uh, uh, scroll down to the events panel and you'll uh, click on Bay Moot and there it is. So we've got stuff going on. It's a lot of fun. However, uh, tonight, 
I, you know, we've we've got a lot of stuff to talk about about the the class. And by the way, I'm disclosure as you will have seen from the reading assignment. I'm not planning to get too far tonight. Tonight is all about familiarizing ourselves with this text, and that means kind of contextualizing things a little bit at first. Though I'm not going to do much historical contextualization, um, but I do want to talk about language and pronunciation. Uh, and uh, we're also I, I, we're gonna we're gonna do some orientation sort of within this world that Mallory is writing about, and that's going to be a lot of fun. So that's why I wanted to go really slowly, especially slowly, uh, here at the very beginning. Um, but let me explain some uh, uh, some some things about how we're going to proceed in this class and what is going to be uh, what is going to be happening because there is some awesome we are breaking some new ground with this class uh, which I am really really excited about so uh, so let me tell you what I mean first of all uh, one thing this class is going to be by far the longest Mythgard Academy class that we've ever done. That's pretty much a foregone conclusion because this is not only one of the longest books we've ever talked about, but it's in Middle English. So, you know, we're going to take our time. Um, I fully expect this, uh, you know, this discussion of Lamar d'Arthur is going to be in the end, I don't know what, maybe 30 sessions or something. I'm not really sure. Um, So uh, let's, uh, uh, let's, yeah, so it's it's going to take a while. So long that normally, of course, I give you a full breakdown of, you know, week by week of, you know, here's how we're going to go through the whole book so you can know your reading assignments in advance and stuff like that. Um, and you will remember my triumph last time with the War of the Ring class when I stuck to my schedule and even ended in one fewer weeks uh, than I originally posted. Uh, still just a little bit smug about that. But anyway, um, normally that's how I do. I'm not even going to try that with this because I'm really not 100% sure exactly how fast we're going to end up going through. Um, in case you're wondering, you know, whether is this going to be like exploring the Lord of the Rings, where exploring the Lord of the Rings, I was like, it's going to be at least 50 sessions or something. And now we're at session number 66 and we're less than one sixth of the way through the whole book. Like that's, it's not going to be like that. Trust me. It's really not going to be like that. Um, but I can't tell exactly how long it's going to be. So what I'm doing is I'm making the schedule a bit at a time. Uh, so if you, uh, if you look at your table of contents, we're in the tale of King Arthur, uh, and then uh, basically it's it's the, the entirety of the first section of the work, which is called the tale of King Arthur, um, that we uh, that that I I did for the schedule, and then we're going to move on to the tale of the noble King Arthur that was emperor himself through the dignity of his hands and onwards. Um, after that, uh, b- but one bit at a time. So keep your eye on the schedule. This goes, by the way, for the webinar sessions, which uh, are accurate through what, like the end of August or something like that. And then I just have a bunch of placeholders essentially. So, um, uh, we'll keep updating that, uh, and the, uh, the reading schedule as well. Let me, um, let me bring out for a second here, uh, the page on our mythgard.org website. Uh, this is the uh, Mythgard. So if you go to Academy, the Mort d'Arthur, here is the first one. You can find the information on our previous classes all there. So anyway, here's our Mort d'Arthur page, and uh, you can find lots of awesome, useful information here, uh, and including at the bottom our schedule, which, as you see, goes through week six. So uh, this is all of our this is all of our stuff. Now, in talking about the schedule, of course, I should also mention the um, uh, I, I should also mention the uh, texts 
that we're going to be using. As I have been saying, we are using the Vinaver edition, uh, the second edition of Eugene Vinaver's uh, edition of Maori based on the Winchester manuscript um, and not on Caxton's division. The main thing that I dislike about Caxton, uh, the Caxton text, is I really dislike his chapter divisions. You know, he divides it into books and into chapters, and I find his chapter divisions uninspiring and actually distracting. I, I, I dislike those, and I like the, 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 the sort of story-by-story story groupings of things much better uh, in, uh, uh, in following the Winchester manuscript rather than following Caxton. Um, anyway, this, is, this, this text also, I will admit, um, does some modernizing, right? Not much modernizing, but it, it does things like modern punctuation and capitalization and things like that. Um, so there's, there's, and there's a little bit of, uh, uh, of spelling, like it uses all modern English letters, for instance. Uh, but it's not, it's not a huge deal, nor enormously intrusive. Now, uh, for Arthurian scholars among you, you will be asking, why are we not using the new PJC Field edition of Mallory, which is uh, you know, the new authoritative version, which has really supplanted the old Vinaver that I was raised on. Um, there are two primary answers to this question. I have a practical uh, and a wholly impractical reason for using the Vinaver instead of the field. Um, my practical reason is that I have found in every search I've done that the, the Vinaver is still just kind of easier to find. Uh, and especially it's confusing because this is the paperback edition of the field. There's also a, uh, a hardcover two-volume edition of the field, which is enormously expensive. And I don't want anybody to get confused that we're asking them to buy the ridiculously expensive hardcover version. So... Um, this is a great book. You absolutely can't go wrong. This is fantastic. Uh, but I, again, I find this easy. This one easier to find uh, and 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 a little cheaper uh, to get as well. That's the practical reason that uh, um, that I choose this. The impractical reason is that I'm a grumpy old man, and this is the book I was raised on. Doggone it! And I like this book. So so there. That's the one that we're reading. I've spoken. Um, no offense to B.J.C. Field, who is possibly the greatest Arthurian alive, and uh, you know it, it's a, it's an awesome text. It's wonderful. Like I said, you can't do better. Um, but <laughs> that's it. That's it. Uh, I'm uh, I'm I'm uh, exactly James. I'm I'm settling into being a grumpy old man. You know, my wife keeps telling me I'm becoming a grumpy old man before my time. So exactly, James. I've decided to own it. That's it. <laughs> get off my green sword says Tom Hillman exactly exactly so anyway okay so that's so that's that's the story and I'm not ashamed of it um however now some of you may be asking though well surely this book is in the public domain right I mean this book is is you know more than 500 years old so um what if I don't want to purchase this text? Is there a freely available, you know, like there are versions of it on the internet, right? What should I do? Where should I find it? Well, here's the thing, especially if you're an ebook reader, as of course many people are, there are no really good options 
uh, for eBooks of this text. Um, especially if you want to get, you can get some, uh, you know, a version through uh, Project Gutenberg, but it's not. Uh, it's like a 19th century edition of the text, or an 18th century edition, or something. It's not. It's not the Middle English version, and so it's not really. It's not really the right thing. Um, however. Uh, so we have taken matters into our own hands, and here I have to uh, uh, praise the initiative uh, of uh, Jana uh, Steen-Reneker, our long-term uh, 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 participant uh, and listener, uh, who has valiantly attended Mythgard Academy sessions in the middle of the night for many years. Um, he's uh, six hours ahead of me uh, in the Netherlands, so... Um, uh, you know, this time spot is not the most convenient for him. However, uh, what he has done, if you scroll up a little bit on this page, we have made our own ebook of the Caxton text, which is available online. Um, and it's a really good Middle English edition. So if you click here, you can get either an e-publication or a mobile version uh, of the book. And it looks like this. Now, here's the cool thing. Not only do we have the full Middle English text available um, here in the uh, in, in ebook version, but we also have this specifically subdivided for our class assignments. So we've got our little introduction about our uh, Mythgard Academy class. This gives you the actual division. So as you go through, because if you're reading the Caxton, you know, the, the, the schedule that I've posted there on the website is from this edition. As I said, this is the one that we're using. So I have page and line number uh, for this edition. So it's really easy to find for people who are using this. But if you're wanting to use the e-text and you're reading the Caxton chapters, you're like, where the heck do I stop? I have no idea. Um, and how could you? So what you do here is you go through and you start, uh, oh, this is Caxton's preface, which is really fun. Uh, uh, so by the way, so Yana has made a separate table of contents here for the, the kind of, uh, chapter summaries that, um, uh, that Caxton gives, which is really fun. So this goes, this goes all the way through. Let me scroll forward a little bit here. Um, okay. Yeah. All right. We're in chapter six already. Okay. Hang on. Scrolling back. Okay. So this starts at the beginning of the first chapter of book one. So this is our, our first reading for today. Uh, so you go through and you start at chapter one and you're reading through and then you get to chapter three and it tells you this is where we stop chapter one in, for class number one, right? So for tonight's class, this is where you are meant to have read. And then it tells you, uh, you know, we go through and this is where you now start chapter two and it goes through chapter two. Uh, and you see there's a little more reading for chapter two than there was for uh, for, for uh, class two than there was for class one. Um but then you're finally going to get to, there it is, the end of week two, right? So all of this is set up for you uh, so that you can keep up with the class um, like, uh, uh, like normal. Uh, and it's going to be really cool. So um, we're also going to be putting some extra stuff. And this is where it gets really exciting, right? Okay. Um, our goal uh, is to, um, our goal is to, to create something together, right? This is going to be a long project, this, this reading and this discussion. And I, you know, this is not just about me doing stuff and it's, it's not even just about our class discussions. Uh, we want something to, we want to create something here. We want to create, uh, and this is kind of inspired by the fact that there isn't really a good Maori e-text out there. Um, at least not a, not, not one that's set up for, uh, uh, for, for ebook readers. So what we want to do is we want to take this basic text, um, you know, this, this sort of basic 
basic ebook that uh, uh, that Yana has been working on in conjunction with Curtis Wayant, our uh, MythGuard uh, webmaster, and we're gonna. Uh, we would love to to annotate it, right? We would love to have that be a community project as we go, right? We'd like to insert stuff as we go. So one thing we're going to do, for instance, is insert links to the recordings of the class sessions and stuff at the end of the uh, of the, of the readings, so that as people are looking through this, you know, in the future, they can then watch our class discussion on that as we uh, as we go through. But in addition, we would love more annotations. Um, so if you see, going back to the web page for a second here. Um, help us annotate the ebook, right? So we have uh, um, we have a, a Google form here for you to submit stuff. If you have a textual note or gloss you would like to make, if you want to uh, put in some details, like for instance, like here in this place, the Caxton text differs from the Winchester manuscript text in these interesting ways, right? We can do that. Um, references to uh, to literary scholarship. Uh, is something, you know, if there's something that I, uh, that I said in class that you thought was interesting or something somebody else said in class that you thought was really interesting, um, submit that, right? So that we can add, you know, notes and, and framework. Again, all of this stuff is going to be free and open access, um, you know, so we're not looking to put in copyrighted material here. Um, but uh, but this is going to be really fun. Another thing, of course, that I would really like to do is to have links to audio recordings, you know, and I think I've mentioned before that it's one of my fondest uh, uh, dreams sort of on my bucket list to have an unabridged Middle English uh, a pronunciation version of Sir Thomas Mallory. There are unabridged recordings. The audible version is fine, um, but you'll notice, by the way, that the uh, uh, if you if you well, we'll get to it. Never mind. Um, we, we, I'll come to that later on. Point is, they're they're recordings, but they're all in modern translation. Um, if you got the Mallory aloud uh, selections of Mallory read aloud, uh, published by the Chaucer Studio, one of my favorite companies in the world. Um, then you uh, you were able to hear some awesome Middle English pronunciation. They do a great job, but they only do, you know, like, what, 2% two, 2 or something of the whole book. Um, we need to do... We need to do more of that, right? So my, my dream, right? My dream is to have an unabridged Middle English pronunciation recording of Maori done in full cast mode, right? That would be so cool. Uh, and you guys can help make it happen, right? Practice your pronunciation. We're going to do this together, right? Practice your pronunciation. And as we do recordings, we can we can link those into the ebook, right? It's going to be great. So um, this is going to be uh, exactly, Curtis will do Mythgard full cast LibriVox style. That's exactly it. That's just, uh, that's just what, what we can do. Um, and it's going to be really, really neat. So, um, uh, anyhow, so there's, 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 uh, uh, yeah, Brianna, I, I agree. Some, uh, crowdfunding for illustrations and stuff would be very good as well. All kinds of things, uh, that we can do. So, uh, anyway, I, you know, I, I'll be fascinated to see where this grows. This concept grew in like a couple hours, right? As from some initial conversations Curtis and I were having, and then Yana pitched in and was like, I want to do exactly what he didn't know we were already talking about. And so, you know, we all kind of got together and, and, and this has started up and it's, it's, it's growing. Um, we will, by the way, be posting, um, that if you download the the e-text, that's that's really good. Obviously, it's going to be updated. We only have the schedule for the first six weeks and stuff, so uh, there will be versions of it coming out uh, uh, continuously, th- you know, throughout the course of the of the class. And then, of course, we'll be annotating it and releasing that. So, uh, you know, check back for 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 new versions. 
uh, frequently, and we will um, let you know uh, about that. So, um, anyway, see how much fun this is going to be? We haven't even started yet. You see how much fun this is already going to be? So, anyway, uh, so many, many thanks. Uh, Many thanks, of course, as always, to Curtis, who has been a great help in getting all this stuff together and building the webpage and everything like that, uh, as well as advising on the ebook. And, of course, as I said to Yana, uh, who has been making uh, this happen, I am super excited uh, to see that project develop and to see the ways in which you guys are able to get involved involved and contribute some uh, uh, some material for that. So, okay. Um, yeah, as Curtis points out, we will definitely share on social media and stuff when we uh, when we update the ebook so that you can know uh, when you need to when you need to to uh, download it. So, okay. Um, all right. Now, now let's talk about something else. Let's talk about language and pronunciation now. Um, so I'm going to start by doing some other middle English, right? I want to give a little bit of context here. And first of all, let me give a general disclaimer. <laughs> I'm really rusty on my Maori pronunciation. I'll get better as we go through the class, but I'm out of practice reading Maori. Um, my Chaucer's pretty good, but my Maori is really rusty. And in fact, my Maori is l- rusty in large part because my Chaucer is good. Let me show you what I mean. So um, let's, um, let's look at uh, Middle English. Let's do a tiny little lesson in Middle English pronunciation here uh, and see how we do. So uh, first, let's look at some Chaucer. So that we can get, because you know modern English, I'm going to go. I'm just going to go out on a limb there and and, and assume that. Uh, so let's go back a little bit to sort of classic Middle English uh, Chaucerian pronunciation, and then we'll kind of see how Mallory is kind of in the middle between, uh, you know, as the vowels are beginning to shift in the great vowel shift between Chaucer and now. So here's the beginning of the Wife of Bath's prologue from Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. Experience, though known auctorite, were in this world, were wreaked enough to me to speak of woe that is in mariage. For Lord Dingus, sith he twelfth year was of age, he thunkered big God that is eternal on leave, whose bonders at church door he have had fever. For he so oft have he wedded bay, and all were worthy men in here de grey. By the way, she says, for I so oft have wedded bay, which is a strange thing you might think to say. She's just said she had five husbands at church door, right? And then she says, for I so oft have e wedded bay, because that's how often I've been married, which sounds like an odd thing to add. But of course, the whole context of what she's going on to say is she's going to be contradicting the traditional teaching that says you can't have that many husbands, that like it kind of gets illegitimate at that point in that uh, your fifth husband isn't really your husband anymore, that four is the maximum. And she's engaging in that controversy. So that's what she's setting up there by saying that. Okay. So that's traditional Chaucerian Middle English pronunciation. So let me just kind of draw attention to a few things. Uh, Rule number one of Chaucerian pronunciation, consonants. Pronounce all the consonants, right? Um, So, and that's relatively simple. It sometimes uh, gets a little... Uh, you can kind of stumble over it a little bit. Things like Lordinges, right? And Ifonked um, it, God. It's uh, There's actually not too many uh, weird uh, consonantal uh, words here. Um, uh, one that I would point to is uh, this word, Enoch, the G-H. 
you 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 give it a good consonant, uh, which is fun to do under any circumstances. Um, which means, of course, that the word for the dude in armor riding around on horseback, hitting other people with long sticks, is in fact knichte, knichte. Uh, you pronounce the K and the N, and you do the H on the GH, uh, so the thing is pronounced Knichte. And that's kind of the joke, right? That's like the source of the Monty Python joke, right? That's when the when the French taunter calls them silly English Knigets. He's almost pronouncing it correctly in Middle English, which, of course, Terry Jones knows Middle English and uh, has published on Chaucer, actually. And uh, uh, that's again, that's kind of part of the joke there. Anyhow, okay, so... Um, um, oh, Harneth, you like my title slide? Thank you. I, 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 I designed it. I, 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 I've been slaving over my, uh, my, I'm like, I'm going to be stuck with this, uh, slide design for months. So I better get this right. Uh, anyway. Okay. Um, does the double F do anything special? No, no, not really. I mean, generally double letters just usually mean you kind of hold it a little bit longer, but no, there's, there's, there isn't a, a major, it's not like, uh, you know, V's or F's or things like that. Um, but, um, yeah, so, okay. So, uh, other, other things that I would draw your attention to. Vowels, right? So, the, 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 the E's, short E's are much like modern English short E's, um, but uh, no, the, the long E, as in the end of auctorite, right, that the E is pronounced A, that you get nice, pure, open vowels uh, in Middle English, A, A, E, O, so the E's are pronounced A, auctorite. Uh, and uh, the A's, uh, like Twelfier uh, Walls of Aja, ah, right, the open A, you never say ah in Middle English. You don't say A with A's, right? Those are E's that are pronounced like A's. Um, so Aja, auctorite. Okay, uh, Y's, when used as a vowel, or I's, when uh, they're long, uh, these are all short eyes. In, uh, uh, in is a short. Uh, is is short, right? Here, h i r. That's a long i. Enoch, right? That again, uh, pronounced as its own syllable there as a vowel, uh, just as e wedded, right? Um, so y's and i's are pronounced like e's. They don't have any diphthong sound. It's just e, right? A a e o u, for the for for the vowels. Um, uh, major uh, uh, sort of diphthongs that we do have, the AU in auctorite, that's au, just like AUs in Elvish, right? Easy to remember, auctorite. Uh, and then the OU is pronounced oo, like moose or loose, right? Whose uh, bondas? Whose bondas at Chirchador i have had fever? So auctorite, whose bondas, right? Um, uh, double O's. So if you say like, well, hang on, if O-U is pronounced ooh, then how is double O pronounced? Um, uh, like, uh, like here, N-O-O-N, right? How is that pronounced non? Uh, uh, single O and double O pronounced the same, right? The only difference is that you hold it out a little bit. It sort of indicates a longer vowel. Um, experience, though non auctorite. Right, so you hold out the a in the ee, and you hold out the o in the oo, but oo does not make a different sound. That's not noon. That's known. Right. So, uh, so it's kind of it's kind of it's kind of simple in some ways. Okay, 
maybe not very, but there it is. Um, so experience, though none authority were in this world, were right enough for me to speak of woe that is in marriage. Uh, she doesn't need any authority. She doesn't need any church fathers to tell her that you'll have woe if you get married, right? She is the expert based on experience because she's had five husbands and she can tell you everything about the suffering that is in marriage. This is the wife of Bath's opening, right? Which makes it sound like she's going to turn things around and complain, right? And say like, men are always complaining that wives make their lives miserable, right? But I'm going to now tell the woman's side. That's kind of how it start, how it sounds like it starts there at the beginning. Uh, when in fact, she's doing stuff that is so much more complicated than that, but that's okay. We're not here to, uh, uh, to talk about the wife of Bath. Uh, we're just here to uh, pronounce her language. Now, uh, Sharon, great question. Uh, fiva, that's just the, the, the U here is, is the consonant V here. Leva, Fiva. Those are just, uh, those are, that's just a, a, a typographical convention uh, from the manuscripts that's been preserved in this particular edition. Yeah, yeah. So that's not, a, not actually a vowel at all. That's a consonant. Okay. The, the, the Latin U, V thing is... Uh, uh, fairly common uh, in medieval manuscripts. Okay, so this is how Chaucerian Middle English sounds. When we get to Mallory, things have started to change significantly. On the one hand, you still pretty much do all of the consonants thing, right? So, uh, so knights are still knichts in Mallory, which is fun because you get to do the hard K in knight all the way through the text, right? Thousands of, I don't know how many uh, ver- uh, uh, instances there are. Lots, though. Uh, and you'll get to use uh, the hard K lots of times. Uh, it's funny, I was just listening to the Maori aloud again on the way home uh, when I was driving my son uh, uh, to his thing off this evening. And we were driving home and he busted out laughing when we got to the passage about how Sir Palamides uh, knailed upon his knay. Uh, or Kneeled upon his knee. See, that's the kind of mistake I'm going to make all the time. Anyway, um, yeah, that, pronouncing the K in knee was, uh, uh, was, was especially comical. So anyway, so do all the consonants and the GHs are still, um, uh, are still, right? So you've got, uh, so again, knicht will still be how you pronounce that word. However, you'll notice, okay, one thing to keep in mind. The terminal E's have pretty much gone away. Oops, I think I forgot to mention the terminal E's, though I was pronouncing them. Um, so like Aja, Leva, Fiva, right? When you have the terminal E, which is silent in modern English, it gets pronounced not as an equal syllable like, you know, Leva and Fiva. are not exactly two-syllable words, right? They're kind of two-syllable words, but they're not two equal syllables, right? The stress is always on that first syllable. Uh, you just kind of get a, like a, little beat uh, on the uh, on the the terminal e, but it does get pronounced, and it is important uh, for the scansion of the of the the poetry. That was really a turning point, actually, in Chaucer studies. Uh, it was kind of it was, it was sort of an interesting thing after the vowel shift. By the end of the of, of the 16th century, so by the time we get to Shakespeare, they don't do the terminal e's and stuff anymore, uh, and a bunch of the vowels have shifted. Not all, but a bunch, and. Uh, so they they were still reading Chaucer and they loved Chaucer and they they you know so then in the 18th century right they're reading Shakespeare and they're just all about Shakespeare right but like Shakespeare and his contemporaries are all reading Chaucer and loving it right and they're all like Chaucer is the greatest you know poet ever and so these 18th century guys are like well um 
in the Elizabethan times, they said that Chaucer was the best poet ever, but they're reading him and they're like, this guy can't write a line, right? This is terrible. Uh, and it was because they didn't know about the terminal E, essentially, especially that, but other things too. So when the, the guy came along who finally like figured that out, like, you know, sort of people began to finally give Chaucer some respect. But, um, okay. So, um, the, uh, so anyway, terminal E's. When we get to Mallory, the terminal E's are done, right? Uh, so this is just king. No terminal E. Uh, king of all England. Uh, so we don't, it's not king. Um, so we're, we're, we're fine with that. Um, the A's are still, the long A's are still like the A's in Chaucer's English. So you get words like castle, right? And very prominently in the text, ladi, right? A fire ladi and a passing wise, right? But as you can hear, the eyes are shifting, right? The eyes don't sound like E anymore. Now they, they begin to sound like the modern I sound, right? Uh, to bring his wife with him, charging him to bring his wife with him. For she was called a fire ladi and a passing wise, and her name and her nam was called Khaled Igraina. Again, I'm going to make so many mistakes because I'm going to slip into Chaucerian. Um, notice how I did Nama. I did the terminal E, right? I can't help myself. It's going to take a while. It's going to be an adjustment. Um, um, okay. The other thing that we get, the thing that's hardest for me to do, the E's have shifted, right? So this is when he was king. And you're going to hear me say accidentally when hey was king, because that's how it would be in Chaucerian English. But the E's are modern E's. So the vowels are A, E, I, O, U. Okay? A, E, I, O, U. So it's weird. <laughs> I always, again, I have a hard time with it. So we get Lottie, he, uh, o, like suppose. Uh, 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 no, sorry. Uh, 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 wife, right? Um, wise. And duke. Juan, so Juan the duke and his wife were common unto the king. Um, anyway, yeah. So it's, 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 it's tricky. But I think it's less tricky if you don't know Chaucerian pronunciation. So I'm trying to explain kind of where this fits. We do start to get modern diphthongs as well. So the OU, which made the OO sound, the OO sound has shifted. So double O's now mean OO. Um, so we have, uh, uh, where is it? We have a good woman. Uh, uh, yes, but she, but she, not she, I almost said it, but she... Darn it, I did say it. But she was a passing good woman and would not assent unto the king. Um, yeah, there we go. So good. She's a good woman. Not a gold woman anymore. She's a good woman. And OU is changing to the hour. Um, so we get um, uh, 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 aura, like the pronoun. O-U-R-E. Aura. Um, not, not, uh, not Ura, as it would be in Middle English. Okay. I won't belabor this too much more, uh, just to kind of give you a little bit of, uh, um, a, uh, a little bit of, uh, uh, context, uh, in all of this. Um, 
Uh, so anyway, yeah, Craig, if you're if you're learning Old English, it's going to throw you off even more. Yeah, it's not like Old English either. Um, um, James Stevens asks, why is everything passing good? Uh, you know, it's a really interesting word to use. I mean, you can see it's used in the word of like the modern surpassingly, right? Which we don't know, almost never say anymore. But passing is a is a a favorite adverb of Maori's. He's going to use that a lot. Um, uh, a passing wise. Um, she's really wise. I mean, so basically it means that her wisdom surpasses the wisdom of other women. Right. Um, so he's not just saying that she's, uh, and maybe of other men as well, but, um, the interesting thing about it is that it's an adverb, which has a frame of reference, right? Um, it intrinsically suggests that the, the quality, right? The adjective that's being modified by the adverb passing, um, is, being judged in comparison to other things and it surpasses them. There's like an intrinsic competition involved in this, right? Uh, so the wisdom, uh, of the, uh, of the, of the other, uh, fire ladies has been, uh, uh, sort of measured, right. And hers surpasses that. Uh, that's why I think again, presumably, presumably, um, of the other women. So it's, yes, Alex, exactly. It's not passing in the sense of like you get a passing grade, right? Not, not at all. Not at all. Uh, uh, this is an exemplary. Well, not see, but again, exemplary is, doesn't say the right thing, right? Um, it's the best of all of them. And you'll notice this is a way that Maori thinks a lot, right? Noticing patterns like that is interesting, um, because it does really suggest, um, the some of the root concepts behind how Maori thinks, right? This question of rankings, right? Uh, you know, it's if if uh, you can be strong, right? You can be very strong, but are you passing strong? Because in order to be passing strong, you have to be your strength has to surpass that of other people, and the only way you can do that is to you know test your strength against other people. Uh, so we will see the strength of knights and their endurance and their skill with the sword versus their skill in the joust. We're going to see the fairness of ladies, and of course, in paragraph one, we get the wisdom of ladies compared to others and judged by comparison. Nancy asks, do they have a leaderboard like in The Princess Bride? Absolutely. Uh, the, uh, the, the Maori is like the one who invented the scoreboard, uh, the leaderboard that, uh, uh, that uh, The Princess Bride is, is sort of making fun of. Um, so, Rachel, yes, it's a superlative. It, it does. It's a superlative, not necessarily, but kind of vaguely. Right. It doesn't necessarily mean she is the wisest of all the ladies in the entire land. Like there's been a scrupulous measurement and hers is higher than everybody else. Um, we do see him giving superlatives. Right. And he usually lands a lot more on superlatives. He'll give that a whole phrase. Right. Um, uh, you know, the the greatest in the land, you know, that kind of thing. But uh, passing. So passing is a little bit arm, you know, hand-waving, right? Uh, it just means really a whole lot, but it is in comparison. Like, she's way up there, right? You know, it's so it's not exactly the rank, but it's, uh, uh, it's, it's big. Um, and David, yes, this use of passing is still common in Shakespeare's time. Um, it starts to drop off a little bit, but no, Shakespeare does that uh, uh, still quite a bit. 
not as often as Mallory does, but yeah, that's still in Shakespeare diction. Um, okay. All right. So with that introduction, let's actually talk about this passage of text that I've been so far only using for, uh, um, uh, for pronunciation illustration. Um, yeah. Yeah, Matthew, I think it does suggest that if you gathered all the wise women, she would surpass them. Again, I don't, it's not necessarily an absolute superlative, but, um, but certainly, you know, if, uh, if you, if you got a bunch of them, her wisdom would surpass, like, at least most of them, right? She would be, uh, she would be in the upper echelon of wise ladies, uh, no question. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I would say somewhere between, a, I'd say excellent, right? Her wisdom is excellent. That doesn't mean number one, necessarily. It might be number one, but it's not, it's not claim, this isn't an overt claim for number one. But it's way up there, right? Way up there. Okay. Um, top quartile. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. Top quartile. Um, uh, okay. All right. It befell in the dies of Uther Pendragon, when he was king of all England and so regnant, that there was a mighty duke in Cornwall that held war against him long time, and the duke was called the Duke of Tintagel. And so, by means, King Uther sent for this duke, charging him to bring his wife with him, for she was called a fire lady and a passing wise, and her nam was called Igrine. So, when the duke and his wife were coming unto the king, by the means of great lordes, they were accorded both. The king liked and loved this laddie well, and he made them and he made them great cheer out of measure, and desired to have lion by her. But she was a passing go, a passing good woman, and would not assent unto the king. And then she told the duke her husband, and said, "I suppose that we were sent for that I should be dishonoured. Wherefore, husband?" I counsel you that we depart from hence suddenly, that we may ride, that we may ride all nicht unto our own castle. Okay, all right. That was uh, uh, that was uh, that was rough, but uh, there we go. Nancy, this is quite a scandalous opening, right? Um, so now notice the context. This is, as I say in my subtitle, this is peace talks gone disastrously wrong, right? So Uther Pendragon is the king of all England and so reigned, right? That's important. He's not just uh, titularly the king, right? He is the king and he's actually reigning. That's, that's the, you can't take that kind of thing for granted. Um, and there's a mighty duke in Cornwall and he's been at war with him for a long time. So Cornwall is a, is, is a, a, a different realm, but notice that he's not called the king of Cornwall, right? He's called a duke in Cornwall, which means that presumably uh, the Duke of Cornwall theoretically owes allegiance to Uther Pendragon, right? Um, And so the Duke of Cornwall is saying, dude, you might be king of all England, but you're not going to so regna here in Cornwall. Forget about it, right? I'm going to... So he's like attempting to secede. He's not uh, uh, acknowledging the rulership of Uther Pendragon over him. But we know that there are many of the other uh, local lords and barons around England who do acknowledge Uther Pendragon. That's why he so reigns there, right? Um, and uh, by the way, you you will already notice that another favorite phrase of Mallory's is by means, right? Uh, and this is... 
the phrase that Mallory seems to use when it's not really important to his story how this happened, right? Like, by some means or other, whatever, it doesn't really matter. King Uther sent for this duke, right? So he's not going to get into the story of, like, the message that was sent, because you could do that, right? You could do the whole thing with, like, and then he sent this messenger, and he charged him, and he told him to go to the Duke of Cornwall and say this unto him, and then he goes to the Duke of Cornwall and says that unto him, and the Duke of Cornwall is like, tell Uther that I said, heck no, and he sends it back. You know, I mean, so he could do the whole thing. So that's his indication, I'm skipping some. Right. You'll notice Mallory is nothing if not efficient. Right. He's not going to belabor this thing. Uh, This is a this is a uh, this is a very short version of this book. Right. It should be way longer if he were going into detail. Um, So by means, King Uther sent for this duke. Right. Uh, and so we're getting the we're getting the 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 pricey, the abstract version, charging him to bring his wife with him because this is the important bit. Right. Um, the 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 peace talks between Uther Pendragon and the Duke of Cornwall are important because we need to know a that they're at war, that this is his enemy. Right. Um, but of course, notice it's not a foreign king. Um, and of course, there are foreign kings all over uh, the British Isles. Right? You don't have to go to France to find a foreign king uh, at, at this time. Anyhow, uh, so um, you uh, uh, so we we know that he's uh, that he's an opponent, but really he matters because Igraine is his wife, right? Uh, and after all, what we are interested in here is um, uh, is Arthur, right? And the beginning of uh, of of Arthur. Um, okay, good. And um, let's see. Yeah, Veronica, it is kind of reminiscent of King David and Bathsheba. The main difference, I would say, between the David and Bathsheba uh, story is that it's not exactly like the uh, the uh, the taking of uh, the wife of Urias in the King David story is much more of a betrayal of trust. Right. Um, that's uh, Urias was the faithful and loyal uh, 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 soldier of King David. And so it's much more of a personal betrayal um, and a much more of a, an exploitation of power. What he does. Um, this is scandalous. Right. Um, but uh, but it's not exactly on that same level. Uh, and Sharon, you're right. The poor Duke, we don't he doesn't even it doesn't even matter who he is. We don't get his name. Right. He's the Duke of Cornwall, the dude who was married to a grain before. And we don't really we don't really cares. Uh, we, we don't really care. Yes. <laughs> David Attlee, I think uh, by means uh, uh, you can gloss that as skip a bit, brother. Yeah, that's 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 pretty much it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, good. OK. All right. So uh, let's keep going. Where was I? Um One general context here. And I meant to say this before we started talking about the first paragraph, but that's okay. It's not too late to say it. As we talk about this book, I want you to do, and I usually say this at the beginning of reading books, especially famous books, especially famous books like this, which uh, sort of tell a story that you're generally familiar with, right? Try as hard as you can to forget everything you know about King Arthur, about knights, about chivalry, right? I'm going to try not to use the word chivalry very often, um, except in way, in, except in the way in which uh, Mallory uses it. 
try to use the voc. It's one of my general rules, right? Of uh, of 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 trying to read and understand books. Try to use the vocabulary of the text. Don't impose upon it. Whenever you can avoid it, don't impose upon it external questions. So if you start asking yourself the question, um, you know, uh, uh, what does Mallory say about chivalry? You're skipping steps, right? Does he say anything about chivalry? What does the word chivalry mean to him? What does the word chivalry mean to us? When we say that, what are we thinking? There are things that we associate with that. Um, are those things, is that what Mallory associates with that thing, right? Do we, do, does he even have an opinion on this thing? Is it even a construction that's from Mallory? We can't make those kinds of assumptions, right? We need to build the sense of what the values are in the story, what's important, take our cues from the text itself, right? So one of the things... Um, that I want to be doing here, especially as we're going through the beginning, I want to be understanding this world that we're in, right? What are the, what are the values? What matters here? Um, one thing that seems to matter is the authority of the king, right? The very first thing that Uther does, apart from reigning, right, which is important also, um, is uh, that he charges the duke, to bring his wife with him, right? So he's issuing a command, even to a guy, who, a guy who's in his inferior, but his enemy, right? He was not a, clearly not acknowledged his kingship, um, but he charges him. He gives him a command uh, to bring his wife, um, and the duke does, right? Even though the duke is his enemy, so that's interesting. Um, what else do we learn? What other things do we learn? And especially, I want to be careful in making assumptions about. Um, uh, sort of sexual mores and things. Let's take that as it comes, right? Let's 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 figure that out again from inside the world of the text. What do we learn about that, right? What do we learn about that? Um, well, let's just looking at this text, right? So the king liked and loved this Lottie well. Okay, so he liked her and he loved her. I'm not sure what the distinction is there, right? Um, I'm not, I'm not really sure. It'll be interesting to watch those two words, right? Let's see if we can... I, I wonder if we, we, we don't really have enough data, I think, to parse that phrase. What is the difference between liking and loving? Um, I kind of think, Karita, that there is a difference, right? Um, uh, let's... Yeah, I, 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 I don't think it's merely repetition, or emphasis. It could be, but I don't think so. It doesn't sound like it to me. Um, but I'm not 100% sure. Um, yeah. Patricia, I think that loved does have to do... I think like... If I had to guess, I would say that like it means admired and loved means desired. But that's just kind of a guess. And as I say, we don't have that much, uh, that much data here. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, interesting. Matt is wondering if it could be attached to her description above that she's called a fire lottie and a passing wise. So both her beauty and her wisdom. Um, is it possible that the, this corresponds to those? Um, if so, Matt, I would suggest it was reversed, that the liking would have to do with her wisdom and the loving would have to do with her fairness, right, with her beauty. Um, 
yeah, Kate suggests likes her virtue and wisdom, loves her bod. Yeah, yeah, that that's kind of uh, that seems to be uh, the uh, the general trend. I can I, I can I can get behind that. But again, let's 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 watch and see how those uh, verbs are used. Love is used quite a bit. Liked is used much less. Um, so that would be interesting to see. Um, and he made them great cheer out of measure and desired to have lion by her. Um, to make them great cheer, that just means he's just being a good host, right? Um, he's treating them really well. He's, he's uh, um, you know, making them happy. Um, and he desired to have lion by her. And that's uh, fairly scandalous. Notice, by the way, we don't have any account of his actively propositioning her. Right. Uh, we're told that he desires to have lion by her, but it seems clear. Has he suggested taking any action on that point? But in any or has she just read the signals? Right. Uh, because she is a passing good woman and will not assent unto the king. She is virtuous. Right. She's a good woman. By the way, notice that. Right. Um, I said virtuous, but that's not what the text says. Right. Um, which is actually kind of important because the word virtue means something really quite different. Um, she's a good woman. What does it mean to be a good woman, to be a passing good woman, right? She, her goodness surpasses that of at least most other women, right? And she is manifesting her goodness in that she would not assent unto the king. Uh, so notice the parallel here. We have both the Duke of Cornwall and his wife who are both in their own way resisting the authority of the king. He may be the king of all England, but that doesn't mean he gets to rule over Cornwall necessarily, right? The Duke of Cornwall has a different opinion about that point. Um, and that's not a radical, crazy thing. We see people, we will see lots of kings of little kingdoms which are not under, you know, the kingship. Uh, of England, uh, even though they're just like a couple counties over. Um, so the idea that he would want to set up Cornwall on his own, not totally crazy. Um, she also, his wife, Igraine, resists the authority of the king when he attempts to exert his authority, authority unlawfully over her, right? To induce her to break her marriage vows and the law. Uh, and assent unto his desire to have lion by her. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, oh uh, uh, Marilyn asks a great question. Um, he, uh, uh, he mod them great cheer, uh, great cheer out of measure. Out of measure, sorry. Not uh, Chelsea. Uh, out of measure. Does out of measure suggest that he overdid it? That's a really interesting question. I don't know if it necessarily implies excess um, in the sense of that it was wrong for him to do it. Out of measure does mean more than would have been expected, right? He was hosting peace talks. He is the host of the Duke and his wife. As host, he would be expected to show them good cheer, right? That's He would throw feasts for them. He would maybe arrange entertainments for them. He would show them a good time, right? That's his job as host. The great cheer that he does show them is great cheer out of measure. That's I, I don't think that that's a condemnatory phrase, right? That like everyone is like, oh man, he's going hog wild on the cheer here, right? It's fine, I think, but it's disproportionate, 
right? More, he's gone above and beyond the Call of Duty on the hosting thing, right? Um, which suggests uh, that uh, he might possibly have some other uh, reasons for it. Um, yeah, good. David was asking about a very similar thing there. Um, yeah, yeah, Lee, exactly. Now, you're right to say that, uh, uh, Lee, coming back to the authority of the king here, Egraine realizes that there, she's passing wise, right? She realizes that they, the two of them, and she personally are in a really touchy position, right? She's not going to assent unto the king. She's not going to go unto the king privily, right? She is not going to permit the king uh, to uh, fulfill his desires, right? But if he were to command her, things could get ugly, right? Um, uh, so yeah, it's he, he, he's an authority over them, right? And this is why, in her wisdom, she says, my counsel is that we get out of here right away, right? Um, we don't want to be in the position of having to, you know, to be accused of being, uh, you know... Uh, rude, at least, to the king, defiant even of the king in his own hall, when he's, especially when he's showing them uh, great cheer out of measure. Out of measure. Darn it. Um, and so her, suge- her suggestion has wisdom in it, definitely. Um, and notice she's also reading his plans, right? I suppose that we were sent for that I should be dishonored. Um, this she's beginning to suspect that this might have been his plan all along, right? Did he have ulterior motives when summoning them in the first place? And by the way, did he have ulterior motives? We don't really know, right? Um, does he already know how fire the laddie of the Duke of Cornwall is? Notice <clears throat> she was called a fire laddie and a passing wise. I don't think he's met her before, but he's heard of her reputation, Right. She is called a fair lady. So he kind of wants to see for himself. Right. And then the Duke brings his lady and indeed she is fair. And um, he decides that uh, uh, that looks like a um, that looks like a good thing. So uh, I don't know that Egrain's accusation, therefore, is justified. Um, but by the way, there's another way that we could read that sentence. So she says, I suppose that we were sent for that I should be dishonored. It doesn't necessarily mean that she's accusing him of malice of forethought, right? You could read that as saying, um, the, the for that is the phrase that I'm focused on here. I suppose that we were sent for, uh, that I should be dishonored. She could be saying nothing other than the outcome of our being sent for is likely to be that I'm going to be dishonored, right? Um, so you could gloss that line as her basically saying, okay, husband, this is not going to end well, right? The, uh, the, the, the outcome of our coming here, it's, it's, it's likely to be one way or another, it's going to be bad, right? So let's, so let's beat. Um, it is also possible that she is accusing him, as I said initially, of like that this was his strategy, from the get-go, right? That the entire purpose why they were invited, that they were uh, invited under false uh, pretenses. Um, and um, 
So, you know, I'm not quite sure if I would necessarily read her words quite that strongly, um, but I think it's definitely consistent. It seems con- consistent with the text. And uh, yet, Nancy, it is a bit suspicious, right? I mean, if she did think that, you know, who could blame her? It looks bad. It definitely looks bad. Um, yeah. Um, Mike, that's an excellent question. Mike asks, what about the dragon? He's called Uther Pendragon. What does that mean, right? Does it is that suggest something about him, right? Is he dragonish in some way? Um, uh, that's a wonderful illustration of something that we we have exactly one data point about that, right? Um, we need to wait and learn more about dragons. And spoilers, we're not going to learn all that much about dragons in this book. Uh, there's a, uh, there's a, uh, it's funny when people talk about, you know, knights and King Arthur, uh, you know, rescuing damsels from dragons uh, is one of the first things everybody always talks about. And it almost never happens actually in this book. Um, uh, but anyhow, um, uh, yeah, um, Okay. Oh, good question, Alex. Alex says, does wherefore mean why? Like in Shakespeare, like wherefore art thou Romeo? Like, how come you're Romeo? Um, that line, which so, so, so many high school students misunderstand, um, uh, as if she's looking for him. Wherefore art thou Romeo? It's dark. I can't see you. Um, yeah, no, it doesn't mean that here. Wherefore husband, like, therefore, right? Um, uh, it's a transitional word there. It doesn't mean why. She's not asking a question, right? Um, it is merely transitional. Um, great, uh, great question. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Veronica, yes, it, it does seem to be involved in his coat of arms. But again, let's 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 just kind of hold off on this. Um, one other thing that I will say is that although the use of the title, the Pendragon it becomes very important in some later um, Arthurian retellings, uh, especially, of course, in C.S. Lewis's um, and others. Of, uh, you will f- come across the word Pendragon a disappointingly small number of times uh, in Mallory. Um, we're not going to get all that much data about this. That's one of the reasons why I'm reluctant to talk about it too much, because it doesn't really seem to mean much to Mallory. He doesn't uh, emphasize it really much at all. Um, yeah. Tom, that's a great observation. Tom Hillman says that uh, by saying husband, right? Wherefore, husband, I counsel, I counsel you that way, depart from him suddenly. Um, by calling him husband, Tom says, he she acknowledges her relate her the, the relationship right you know she acknowledges that he is her husband important under the circumstances right uh, I've just been propositioned by another dude who actually outranks you right but notice I am uh, making it clear that the you know the connubial relationship between us is still in force right and primary um, but she is of a wisdom and stature with him that she can counsel him successfully she is counseling him like a peer right um uh, it's her idea what they should do. She doesn't say, wherefore, husband, tell me what we should do to get out of this. Right. No, she, she's got a plan, right? When she advises him to execute and he does. Yeah. <laughs> Kate says, or she doesn't know his name either. <laughs> I guess we can't rule that out. Can we? <laughs> Very good. Um, okay. All right. Hey, let's do slide two. 
and in likewise, as she, as she said, so they departed, that neither the king nor none of his consail were war of their departing. Also soon as King Uther knew of their departing so suddenly, he was wonderly wroth. Then he called to him his privy consail, and told them of the sudden departing of the duke and his wife. Then they advised the king to send for the duke and by his and his wife by a great charge. And if he will not come at your summons, then may ye do your best. Then have ye cause to make michty wear upon him. So that was done, and the messengers had their answers, and that was this, shortly, that neither he nor his wife would not come at him. Then was the king wonderly wroth, and then the king sent him plain word again, and bade him be ready, and stuff him, and garnish him, for within forty days he would fetch him out of the biggest castle that he hath. When the duke had this warning, anon he went, and furnished, and garnished, two, two, two strong castles of his, of the which the one hiked Tintagel, and the other castle hiked Tarabil. Okay. Whew. All right. Things get really tetchy here. Um, uh, excellent, Stephen. I was hoping you were going to ask that. Yes, the double negatives. Uh, they are additive, indeed. That is like, uh, that's the same uh, is true of Chaucer as well. So, um, yes, uh, so when the, the message that the Duke of Cornwall returns to Uther is uh, shortly that neither he nor his wife would not come at him, right? Um, that's not a double negative in the modern sense. Negatives in Middle English add, right? If, if That just means it's twice as negative as a regular sentence, right? And there's little that I find more charming about Middle English than their use of extra negatives. Uh, you can find sentences in Chaucer that have four or five negatives, because that's just how negative the statement is. Um, so uh, that's, uh, that's, really, that's really fun. Um, so several of you were asking about the word um, uh, garnish. Right. Garnish is fun. It does not mean what it means in in modern English. Right. Um, uh, he, he's not garnishing his castles uh, or himself in the sense of putting little sprigs of parsley next to it in order to make it look more attractive on a dinner plate. Um, uh, he is. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, it has nothing to do with that. Um, uh, he is. Um, uh to furnish and garnish him. Um, so notice the two phrases we get. Uh, bad him be ready and stuff him and garnish him. Uh, and uh, he's supposed to furnish and garnish two strong castles, right? Um, so that means to that means to fill out with all necessary things, right? He's preparing for a siege. Um, stuff is not quite as generic a word as it is in modern English, but still it's pretty generic. Um, uh, stuff means uh, uh, baggage and, and everything. Uh, if, uh, uh, for instance, one of my... Um, uh, one of my favorite usages of the word stuff uh, comes in the King James Bible uh, when King Saul 
is first being anointed king, the very first king of Israel, right, is being uh, is being announced, and they draw lots to find out who should be the king, and the uh, and it, and it turns out to be uh, uh, to be King Saul, and he's hiding, um, he's hiding among the stuff, right, uh, in particular the stuff, it's their baggage, so like they've got a big pile of luggage, right, uh, and and he's hiding among the stuff, right, so stuff doesn't just mean you know, stuff in the modern sense. Uh, it couldn't be anything. Stuff could mean anything, right? Um, uh, in modern, in modern English, it means like things that you, necessary things that you have packed for a journey or for something similar, right? Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah. And, and yes, exactly. Um, so he needs to stuff him and garnish him, right? He needs to pack his castles up and fill them with food and all the necessary things so that he's prepared for a siege. And he's going to furnish and garnish his two castles, right? To furnish them would mean to fill them with things like weapons and things that are necessary for the defense. And garnishing would be to, 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 to fill them with, you know, the foodstuffs and everything that he needs. Um, uh, notice foodstuff, that word, you know, contains like the food that you pack, right? Um, okay. Um, Good. Joe asks, what does it mean that the king sent the duke plain words? P-L-E-Y-N-E. He's not beating around the bush uh, is what that means. So because often, you know, if you send a message to a political um, opponent, right, you might speak indirectly, you know, you might uh, try to maintain plausible deniability about this or that, right? You m- might make a, a cloaked threat or something, right? Um, so that later on, if you do come to battle, you can't be accused of being the aggressor. So you kind of, you make it clear that you're threatening him, but you don't actually say it, right? If you're going to, if he's going to send him plain words in that way, he's going to say it right out, right? He's saying, I'm going to come and I'm going to pound you personally into a pulp and kill all your people, right? I'm coming after you. Um, uh, let there be no two ways about that. Uh, so that's what it means that he sent him plain words. And by the way, you guys are asking awesome questions. Can I just say, um, I love questions about the fact that you're reading this carefully and asking about particular words and phrases. That's just what you need to do. Uh, when reading Middle English, because that's how we build our vocabulary, right? So that we we understand not only this world that he's describing, but the way he talks, right? And the way he thinks, the way this story works. Um, Yeah, good. Okay. um, Let's see, what else did I want to talk about here? Lots of things. A personal thing. These uh, first couple slides are of great personal significance to me. I will never forget the time in high school when I found in our town public library, I was in ninth grade, uh, and I found in our town public library an unabridged edition of, uh, of Maori. Um, and it was in modern translation. I mean, it wasn't like a really good text, uh, really, but it was my first encounter with it. And in encountering it, it was the first encounter I had ever had with a real piece of medieval literature. Now, I was in ninth grade, which means I already had considered myself a Tolkien expert for many years, right? So I knew Tolkien and Tolkien's world. 
Um, I have talked before about how Tolkien is kind of responsible for my becoming a medievalist because having been sort of steeped in Tolkien's world for a long time when I encountered real medieval literature for the first time, you know, it was... It wasn't like encountering something new. It was new and it was fresh and and remarkable, Um, but it also was familiar, right? And felt familiar in some kind of deep way. Um, And that I blame Tolkien on, you know, not for prompting me to read medieval literature, but for uh, enabling me to feel so much at home when I did read it, right? So these last few paragraphs that we've been reading were the first pieces of medieval literature, the first sentences of medieval literature I ever read. Um, And I distinctly remember there were many phrases that just brought me a kind of delight uh, that I had almost never experienced in reading before. And um, uh, that phrase, wonderly wroth, was one of them. Uh, I, 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 I remember, I can remember distinctly just kind of mouthing that phrase to myself. He was wonderly wroth. Um, I, I think, I kind of think I, I became a medievalist when I read the phrase, uh, he was wonderly wroth. Uh, in this paragraph of this book, uh, which fortunately the modern, you know, uh, uh, translation that I was reading retained. Um, um, I don't think it was a terrible modern translation that I was reading, but it was still, it wasn't in middle English, but whatever. Um, but yeah, that, that just, that, that, that always got me. Um, yeah. Uh, anyway. Okay. Um, let's see other questions that you guys had. Um, Kate is struck by within 40 days. Um, It is an odd time period, but of course it's biblical, uh, which I assume is where they're drawing it, right? Or rather, that's why 40 days seems logical to them, uh, because 40 days... uh, Those of you who know the Bible, what does 40 days mean? Like, if you had to translate the phrase for 40 days, how would you translate it? Roughly, right? The general sense of it. It generally... It's... If things happen for 40 days and 40 nights, it means for a really long time, right? Um, That's the kind of generic, it's a long time. Now, I'm not taking a stand on whether or not a literal 40 days and 40 nights is indicated or anything like that. Um, it, they may be using it with exact precision, but that's the number they always pull out when they're talking about something that went on for a really long time. Um, you know, the, the, the with, at the flood, it was raining like forever. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights. The, the children of Israel traveled in the wilderness for like ever. I mean, they were out there for 40 years. Uh, you know, Jesus was fasting uh, in the desert for a long, I mean, he was fasting. It was this was a serious fast, right? Forty days and forty nights. Um, again, I'm not saying that I, I'm not. T- I'm taking no stand about whether we interpret those forties in the Bible literally or not. But what I am saying is, it's uh, to me, this seems to be premised upon. I, I think that that's not a coincidence. Um, and King Uther seems to be saying, what's significant about his giving him forty days? I know, forget the exact number forty. 
right? Um, uh, think of, uh, why does he say that, right? Well, well, let me back up from that a little bit. Paraphrase this. He's saying, I'm going to, I'm going to come attack you, right? But he doesn't just say plainly, uh, I'm going to come and make war on you. He says, within 40 days. Now, you're right. Um, Veronica says, he does say within 40 days. So it could technically be tomorrow, right? Uh, yeah, that would be pushing it a little bit. But uh, um, uh, it's, it is an outer bound of how long it's going to be before he comes, right? But anyway, within 40 days, he would fetch him out of the biggest castle that he hath, right? So you should be ready and stuff you and garnish you. Um. Yeah, Matt, exactly. The emphasis that he has here is take your time. Get ready, right? I'm coming, but I'm not coming right away, right? It's not going to be forever, though. Within 40 days, I'm coming. But 40 days, right? you got some time. Get ready. Be ready. Stuff you and garnish you, because within 40 days, I'm going to fetch you out of the biggest castle that you have, right? Go to your most defensible spot. Prepare your most defensible spot uh, as as uh, as 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 well as you possibly can, right? As thoroughly as you be as ready as you possibly can be for a siege and for warfare within your most defensible uh, look. And and I'm gonna get you out of it, right? I'm gonna come for you no matter what. So on the one hand, he's warning him, right? This is this is not a there's zero attempt at a surprise assault here by Uther. Instead, this is a power move, right? He is boasting. I am coming for you, and there is nothing you can do to stop me. Try. Try to stop me, right? Go to your biggest castle. Stuff it. Garnish it. Do whatever you want to do. I'll give you time, right? But within 40 days, it could be 40 days, right? Within a long period of time. But I'm coming for you. And when I come for you, I am taking you down, no matter how big your costal is, uh, and no matter how much you stuff and garnish yourself. Um, so this is a brag. This is a brag. And it is, David, you're right, uh, an attack on honorable terms. He's not going to take him by surprise. Um, this is, I think, one, piece of inf- one important piece of information that we get here. This is a pattern that we're going to see. Right. If you are making honorable war, you send defiance first. Right. You it is shameful to just attack out of nowhere. Right. A surprise attack. That would be disgraceful. Right. I'm going to tell you I'm coming and then I'm going to come. Right. Um, So there's uh, there's this kind of mutual agreement here and we're going to meet on the most level possible terms, right? You get all ready, I'll get all ready, and then we'll see uh, who wins, right? Um, uh, So, yeah, that seems to be, that seems to be, you know, as far as why exactly he does it, I mean, we can, uh, um, 
we can imagine. And now, Harnuth, you're absolutely right uh, that this was a time when it would often take weeks or months to recruit, organize, equip, and train an army. Um, there's not a professional standing army. Um, so you would have to, if you were at war, you would have to call in uh, your vassals and, and, and then they would call in their vassals. And so you, you, but yeah, you don't have an army just sitting around in barracks in your capital, right? Ready to march out. Um, so, you know, he's bringing his army, Uther is bringing his army together. Um, and the Duke is bringing his army together. Now somebody, and I missed it from before, I forget who it was, uh, but somebody was asking, hang on a second. What is it? Why is he like, Redeclaring war here, or like declaring more war. Wasn't he at war already? Like, why? Why is this? Why is this? Why is this a change? Um, and I think that the um, um, the reason for that, uh, or rather, what I take from that, um, let's look at the the phrase here. Um, his what does his privy council say? Um, they advise his privy council advises the, uh, him to send for the king by a great charge, right? So he's going to send his command. And notice this is their sort of politics, right? This is their political stratagem here. If he will not come at your summons, then may ye do your best. Then have ye cows to mock michti ware upon him. So let's think about that. You have cause now to make mighty war upon him. So is he making unmighty war upon him before? Um, yeah, no, Tarlonio, yeah, I think he, there was like a cold war between them before. Because now think about this. Who's talking to the king here? Who's talking to Uther? His council, right? His privy council, which is composed of the other dukes and barons of the land. The other dukes and barons of the land, in general are not going to be huge fans of the king deciding to call up all of his people to go pounce on a duke of the land, right? I mean, after all, if he's going to go and he's going to take down the duke and he's going to take the duke's wife and, like, annex his land, uh, that's an uncomfortable precedent, right? And if we're dukes and barons, we're, you know, going to have second thoughts, about that. The relationship between the king and the barons is tricky, right? Remember that he was the king and so regnant that we got in the first sentence, right? Um, he's reigning because his dukes are with him, right? This is important because, so he was at war before. He was in conflict with the duke, but it does not, he wasn't in the field. He didn't have an army in the field against the Duke of Cornwall before. Uh, they were at odds, Right. He was defying him, but they hadn't gotten around to war yet. That's why when Uther calls the Duke uh, to this meeting right at the beginning, the Duke comes because real war might perhaps still be averted. Right. If they could kind of work things out. Right. Um, so that would be good. But uh, now he has cause to make mighty war upon him. All the other dukes are going to agree. Okay, if you're going to act like that, right? If the king gives you a charge to come and you just defy the king, you just absolutely flatly, you know, he's backing the duke into a corner. The duke has to either come or he has to be uh, 
essentially himself declaring war on Uther. And this will give Uther the political justification that he needs to make mighty war, to get an army in the field and invade Cornwall, which he's not done before. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, good. Um, Yeah, Jonathan asks, would the original request be deemed a parlay and therefore he needed time to declare that the parlay was over? Um, Well, yes, yes. um, This is why, again, notice the sending that goes back and forth, right? Um, First he sends the summons. Uh, and notice how we don't do the by means thing here, right? Remember, we got the, the summoning was happening. So by means, King Uther sent for the Duke, right? Charging him to bring his wife, right? That's all that we need to know. Now we need to know a little bit more about the sending. So we get more detail, right? He sends the great charge to the Duke and the Duke uh, gives the messengers their answers, right? So now we have the, them bringing their answers back to, the, to King Uther. Uh, and their message was shortly, no, they're not coming. Then was the King Wonderly Roth. And he sends him another message. And at this message, he's saying, okay, that's it. He's officially declared war uh, and uh, told him to prepare himself. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, good, good. Um, Yeah, Lee says, I have the feeling the king did not tell his privy council why the duke and his wife suddenly departed. Uh... Even though he probably, they probably know darn well why. Yeah, that's unstated here. And you'll notice, of course, the repetition of that wonderful phrase, Wonderly Roth, here, right? He is first Wonderly Roth uh, when they depart suddenly. Uh, and the Roth, which is so Wonderly, uh, seems at first very likely has much to do with uh, Igraine escaping him, right? You know, he was, uh, really hoping that something was going to come of that. And now he, uh, his desire has been frustrated. Um, and of course he's been insulted by the Duke as well, uh, when he was making them great chair out of measure. Right. So that was great. Um, so it was a personal insult on a couple levels. And of course he's also, his desire has been frustrated. He's wonderly wroth again when he receives their defiance, right? When he receives the message that they won't come back. Um, he's sort of, I don't know, you sort of wonder if he's like privately wroth the first time and publicly wroth the second time. Um, but I think it is interesting that kind of repetition, right? Like he's, uh, now he's justified at being wondered. Now he can, he can, he can, uh, exert his great wrath, um, uh, uh, you know, outwardly and with a, and, and, and to raise an army, uh, from his dukes and barons, uh, because, uh, he's been publicly and politically insulted. So, um, it's very interesting, uh, that, um, the way that honor is sort of, on the one hand, we see political scheming here, right? He is positioning the duke into a corner because notice the Duke also can't say why he left. Um, this is what this is why Agrain says they should leave in the first place, right? Because they're in a really bad place. If he were to say to the king, "No, I will not come to you because you make made indecent advances to my wife, uh, and I think you're going to dishonor her," well, that's just adding another insult, right? I mean, he 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 can't 
presumably can't prove that. Uh, and, uh, you know, so that would be twice as bad for him to actually say that. So he can't come and he can't give the reason why he can't come or else that would just make it even worse. Uh, so the best thing that he can do is just say, uh, shortly, neither he nor his wife is going to come at him. Uh, so, okay. Um, this, but you know, the Privy Council of King Uther has done a really good job of manipulating the political situation. And yet it's not, this is obviously not a situation where kind of any sort of scheming goes, right? Where, uh, the most clever person is the one who wins. Um, you know, if, uh, if that, little political machination starts to sound a little Game of Thrones, King Uther's response does not sound Game of Thrones, right? That is not how successful kings uh, work, right? Um, In fact, by the way, uh, uh, footnote, it's one of the interesting things that you can see happening in the first volume in Game of Thrones uh, that, you know, Ned Stark is like a, a, somebody who operates under rules which are kind of similar, right, uh, to how the uh, the Maori knights operate. Uh, and that's why, you know, he ends up shorter by the end of the book, uh, because he is not part of the cold political realities of the world in which he lives. That isn't this world, right? This world actually lives... Uh, Ned Stark would like this world. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, okay, well, let's see. Karita asks a very sensible question. (laughs) Karita says, okay, if King Uther is already planning to invade and kill everybody, um, how could the Duke of Cornwall make it worse by personally insulting him as well? I think the answer to that question, Carita, would be the Duke of Cornwall is trapped, right? There's no getting out of this. Um, he has offended Uther, and he's going to give Uther um, the political right to make war on him. So he's in trouble, right? There's no two ways about that. But his greatest hope, the Duke of Cornwall's greatest hope, um, would be that not all of Uther's barons are going to support this war, right? If... Um, if there is only lukewarm support for Uther's vendetta against Cornwall, then maybe he won't be able to come with that strong of an army, or maybe his army will break up and, and go home sooner, right? So if he can hold out in his castles, and his castles are pretty big when it comes to it, right? Um, I have never yet been to the ruins of Tintagel, but I really want to go. It's one of my, it's one of my, it's one of the top things on my list of things I haven't yet seen in the British Isles that I really want to see. Um, but, uh, but I've seen pictures and man, that thing is defensible. Like three people could defend Tintagel, uh, for a long time. Uh, so it would be really, really hard, uh, to break into that. Um, yeah, Jennifer, it is totally a real place. Uh, it is, uh, it is awesome. Um, Anyhow, okay, yeah, so Tintagel, enormously defensive. The only approach to Tintagel is by this, like, bridge, like, one person wide. Like, it's it's almost perfectly inaccessible, totally surrounded by water. Uh, really, really great. Um, anyhow, so, again, his best hope, the Duke of Cornwall's best hope, 
stuff and garnish your castles, right? And hope that you can just outlast him, right? Because he's going to have supply issues. He's going to have unhappy barons. But the more fuel he adds to the fire, the more likely uh, Uther's going to be able to rally stronger support and everything. Uh, so I, I, I got to think that that's his plan, right? Um, this is already bad. Let's make this as little bad as possible so that hopefully, um, uh, hopefully uh, it'll be, uh, you know, we'll, we'll make it through. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, let's keep going because we're running out of time. So we're skipping a little bit. So they've he's come and he's uh, 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 pitched his camp uh, before the castle Terrabil. And this is important because um, you'll remember the Duke of Cornwall and his puts he, he and his he puts himself and his wife in two different places. Right. And that's in itself a fascinating thing. Right. Why does the Duke of Cornwall put his wife into Tintagel and himself into Terrabil? Right. Um, And I think there are lots of potential answers to that question. One would be just sort of safety. So we won't get us both at once. Right. But he's also kind of, it seems, perhaps laying a trap for Uther. Right. What is Uther going to do? If Uther is uh, uh, just after the wife. Right. If he goes and lays siege to Tintagel. That's kind of damning, right? The Duke knows Igraine is what Uther wants, right? So he's almost like tempting him, like, hey, she's over there, right? In, you know, his strongest castle, so he won't be able to get into her. But but anyway, she's over there, right? Why don't you go lay siege to Tintagel, right? Because then, of course, if you do, then I will come and attack you from behind. So that would be bad. But also, um, you know, it's uh, it would also be that that would be a bad look right um uh for uh, uh for 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 king uther um and if he does the honorable thing and attacks the duke at terrabil then his wife is safe right so kind of a win-win situation um <laughs> several of you are saying it's, it's a terrible decision, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it's a terrible decision. No, it's a good decision. I think it's great. I think it's awesome. Um, and I'm not really sure about the significance of the name Terrabil. Um, it kind of has the look of one of those words which does not actually mean... Um, uh, doesn't have anything to do with the word terrible. Um but, uh, I mean, notice how Terra is in there, like the word for ground or earth. Uh, so I suspect that it has more to do with that. Um, but uh, I don't think, uh, I don't suspect that it has to do with, uh, uh, terror, in fact. Um, yeah. But, uh, anyway. Um, uh, let's see. Oh, by the way, kudos to whoever gave themselves the name Dolorous Stroke uh, in the attendee list. That was, that was well done. Uh, that's very good. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I don't think, I don't, I don't, I don't think Terra Bill has anything to do with terror, but I might be wrong about that. Uh, but it's a fun pun, you have to admit. So anyway, okay, so King Uther does in fact um, uh 
does in fact attack, uh, lay siege to Terrabil and leave Tintagel alone, right? But he's got problems. Then for pure anger and for great love of fiery grain, the King Uther fell sick. So come to the King Uther, so come to the King Uther, Sir Ulfius, a noble knight, and ask the king why he was sick. I shall tell thee, said the king. I am sick for anger and for love of fiery grain, that I may not be whole. Be whole, sorry, whole. Well, my lord, said Sir Ulfius, I shall seek Merlin, and sh- and he shall do you remedy, that your hurt, that your yes, hurt. I think it's okay. No. Yeah, hurt, short e, that your hurt shall be pleased. Okay, he's going to seek Merlin. So, all right, um, Nancy asks, is it normal in the literature of this time to get sick for that reason? And how? Yes, it definitely is. So notice, he's got, there's um, two causes, right? So our diagnosis is a twofold diagnosis. He's sick uh, for pure anger and also for great love, right? Between these two things, he's, uh, uh, he's, he's sick. And Lynn, I absolutely agree. We see the word love used twice here and clearly in the sense of sexual desire, right? Um, uh, so I think that like it and loved her well, I think it's fairly clear what the loved was getting at, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so what, um, what do we see from this, right? What conclusions can we can we draw from this? Notice, there's no shame here, right? Um, any sense that this uh, might be an unmanly condition, right? That, you know, the great and martial King Uther would blush to admit that he was mooning over a girl, right? And that he was, you know, that he... no. Not, he doesn't, doesn't, there's not a blush here, right? Now, he does put his anger in the first place. Um, it's not just for his love of fiery grind, but uh, it's right up there, right? Um, uh, his anger is pure and his love is great, and that's it, right? Um, and, I, and he doesn't pause, doesn't hesitate, doesn't dissemble, doesn't beat around the bush. I shall tell thee, I am sick for anger and for love of fiery grind. That I may not be whole. That's it. I can't be whole. I'm sorry, I can't. Now, it just doesn't say, by the way, we don't know what his prognosis is. You know, is Uther likely to die of this uh, distemper? We don't really know. Um, You know, this isn't really pushed to the edge. Is it possible that being sick for love uh, can be a fatal condition? Answer, yes, definitely. Uh, That can be fatal. There have been known fatalities on record about that. Uh, But we don't know if Uther's case is fatal or not. And uh, Ulfius doesn't seem particularly, like, worried. I mean, he's not, uh, you know, he doesn't uh, demonstrate any extreme grief or upset, right? Um, But he's... He takes it totally... He takes it in stride as much as the king does telling him. Well, my lord, I shall seek Merlin. Um... And uh, the the uh, fact that seek and sick are homophones in Middle English is just kind of fun. And I don't know what to do with that. Um, the, I, I don't know if, if there's an actual wordplay that Mallory is intending there. Um, 
I mean, it's a rhyme that Chaucer made on a couple of occasions, a very, very famous one, right at the end of uh, the, the, the famous opening passage of the Canterbury Tales. Um, uh, you know, the holy blissful martyr for to seca, that hem hath holpen, one that they were seca. Uh, it's it's, it's uh, uh, the same word, seek and sick. Um, but um, he's going to get a remedy for this. So he takes, he, the, the, both of them are totally cool with this, right? This is, this is fine. He's fallen sick, uh, and this is a, a totally normal uh, w- way to be. Now, David, you are right. The noble knight doesn't rebuke his king's immoral lust. Yes, that's an excellent point, right? Um, Sir Ulfius, when the king says, I am sick because for the love of fire and grain, Sir Ulfius does not say, dude, she's married. Come on. What are you thinking? Right? No, that's not in it. Right? Um, He's like, well, my lord. Right. And by the way, when he says, well, my lord, um, I don't think that we need take that in the modern sense. Right. Well, my lord. Well, my lord. Right. We use the word well as a kind of a transitional word, which doesn't really mean anything. Well, OK. Right. I don't think he's using the word well like that. I think he means the word well, like, well, my lord, like it is well. Um. When he so he, when Sir Ophelia says, "Well, my lord," I believe what he means is, "It is well that you told me, right? I'm glad that you said this. This is fantastic because I've got a great idea, right? Um, thanks for being honest with me about that. Uh, and now let's uh, let's let's troubleshoot this problem. Um, uh, so uh, yeah, yeah, that 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 seems to be um, uh, that seems to be what he's suggesting there. Notice the play between sickness and wellness also, which seems to be going on there, right? That he greets the king's statement of his sickness by saying, well, my lord, which is exactly what his lord is not, right? And I can't help but think that that's a little bit of a joke as well. Um, but um, uh, anyway, um, okay, so... Yeah, so, uh, 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 Stephen, that's really good. Stephen says, okay, so Egraine feels that she would be dishonored, right? That the king's the king's love of her was dishonoring her, right? Um, uh, but would the act not dishonor the king, or is he just not concerned with being dishonored? This is a, this is a wonderful question, right? We have what would seem to be a contradiction. Um, Egraine very clearly... Uh, said that she felt that she would be dishonored. And it was just her, right? Um, that I should be dishonored. Um, we were sent for that I should be dishonored. Not that we should be dishonored. He's not dishonoring the both of them. He's dishonoring her, right? So she says that it would be dishonor for her to assent unto the king. And she's a good woman, remember, a passing good woman. So she won't assent unto him, right? So her resistance to the king, that's goodness, Right? Uh, and it would be dishonor to give in. Um, okay. But Ophius doesn't go there, right? Is the king above that? Is it not dishonorable for him because he's king? Is it not dishonorable for him because he's male? Either one or a possibility, right? Um that it could be a gender-based double standard 
is perfectly plausible that it would not be dishonorable for Uther, but it would be dishonorable for her. Um, that's possible, but we can't really prove... Pam says it's good to be the king. Yeah, something like that. Um, and Craig, I agree with you that I don't think Uther is being held up as a moral standard. Um, but it is interesting, Craig, nevertheless, Ulfius's reaction, right? Now, you know, maybe this suggests that Sir Ulfius is not the highest moral standard either, right? Uh, for all we know, Sir Ulfius is the only knight, is the first knight that we've met by name, right? Um, and the way that he comes up to the king and the conversation they have suggests that he is perhaps some kind of intimate of the king, right? That he's that he's a friend uh, or supporter in any case. Um, so uh, anyhow, um, yeah. So are they buddies, right? Are they both on the same moral level? Does he not care? Uh, you know, again, we don't have enough uh, uh, enough data about this. Um, noble. Uh, that's uh, yes, that is very important, Megan. Um, the noble Sir Ulfius. He is called noble, right? Yes, Sir Ulfius, a noble knight. Noble means, noble is a tricky, tricky word, right? That'll be another fun one to watch as we go through the text. Noble means first and foremost of good birth, right? He is an aristocrat. Um, He is of noble parentage. However, that already long since also has moral implications. So uh, the, the way that, Noble has come to mean virtuous and villainous has come to mean uh, the opposite of virtuous, right? Um, has come to mean wicked or sinful. Um, and Whereas both of them were just uh, descriptions of social classes, right? If you're noble, uh, you're an aristocrat. If you're a villain, it means you're a peasant, right? Um, so but those things have long since in English uh, taken on. I mean, it's it's well established in Chaucer. Um, in fact, in The Wife of Bath's Tale, which follows the prologue that I uh, was reading from before, that whole question of nobility and wherein does nobility lie and shouldn't nobles be noble, right, is, is one of the sorts. I mean, it's uh, the whole premise of the story is it's a noble, uh, a nobleman who does an ignoble thing. Right? It's a nobleman who rapes a woman. Um, and so he has committed uh, this heinous act, and he's he's uh, uh, condemned to death for it. And by the way, it's an Arthurian story, the the Wife of Bath tale. I think it's also why I was thinking of um, the Wife of Bath there. But anyway, um, so uh, I, 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 um, nobility, yeah, yeah. So anyway, the whole question is like, so are you really noble or not? I, I, like I said, the, the, those those concepts are already all tangled up, um, but it's not exactly. Um, clear when he's called a noble connect, does Mallory mean to be uh, uh, informing us of his uh, uh, exalted lineage or is he praising his uh, morals or is he doing both? Um, I'm going to say it's both until proven otherwise, but we should we should look at that. Um James says, is love considered honorable even if it's not socially acceptable? Let's see. 
This is, again, another one of these things that I want to build from within the text. There's lots that I could tell you about the courtly love tradition that this is following. Um, but if I don't want to use the word chivalry, I definitely don't want to use the phrase courtly love um, because that's a whole can of worms that we don't need to open. Um, let's just stick with the fact that we have observed an apparent contradiction. Right. We've got that. We've got uh, uh, Igraine being worried about being dishonored and we've got Ulfius and um, uh, Uther speaking openly of his love for this other guy's wife. And neither of them is batting an eye about it. And the only question is, uh, let's get a remedy for this. And our remedy is um, let's find Merlin. He'll do your remedy. He'll please your heart. Right. Um, which I think means that he would ease both his anger and his love, but I'm not really sure, because uh, if he's going to appease his anger, it's it's less about his heart and more about his spleen, really, technically, but um, but that's all right. Um, nevertheless, Merlin's going to solve your problem, so what's going to happen with Merlin? Let's, uh, let's go there. I love Merlin's first appearance. This is so Merlin. So Ulfius departed, and, and by, aven- by adventure... He met Merlin in a beggar's array, and there Merlin asked Ulfius whom he sought, and he said that he had little ado to tell him. Well, sighed Merlin, I knew whom thou seekest, for thou seekest Merlin, therefore seek no further, for I am he. And if King Uther will well reward me, and be sworn unto me to fulfil my desire, that shall be his honour and profit more than mine. For I shall cause him to have all his desire. All this will he undertake, said Sir Ulfius. Undertake, said Ulfius, that there shall be nothing reasonable, but thou shalt have thy desire. Well, said Merlin, he shall have his intent and desire. And therefore, said Merlin, ride on your way, for I will not be long behind. Then Ulfius was glad, and rode on more than a pass, till that he came to King Uther Pendragon, and told him he had met with Merlin. Where is he? said the king. Sir, said Ulfius, he will not dwell long. Therewithal Ulfius was war, where Merlin, where Merlin stood at the porch of the pavilion's door, and then Merlin was boned to come to the king. All right. Um... Seek no further, for I am he, is an appropriately uh, epic intro line, Karina says. Yeah. Um, okay. Ulfius is a really kind of mysterious figure to me here. Uh, he knows about Merlin, and he says, Merlin will fix you up, right? Merlin can solve this problem. Merlin is our troubleshooter. I'll go find him, right? Um, so he goes out seeking Merlin. Now we have no idea. He does he know where Merlin is? Right? Is there? Does Merlin have a, a popular street address? Right? Does everybody know where to find Merlin? Is it just Ulfius who knows how to find Merlin? Uh, does he have some kind of inside track? Are they friends? Right? I, we don't know. We don't know any of these things. Right? Uh, this will happen a lot. Um, there are. Um, this is one of the things that I often have talked about in my medieval literature classes. Um, one of the major differences between a work of, in, between a medieval romance, right, between a medieval story and a modern novel, we expect a certain amount of continuity. 
And we expect a certain low number of unanswered questions, right? If you're going to bring in a character, this shouldn't be a random character that wanders out of nowhere and goes away and we never see again, right? We, we need, like, modern readers are used to asking questions that they expect the answers to, right? Okay, why did this happen? Why did this person do this? What is the rationale? So, like, what's Ulfius's backstory, right? What's his relationship with... Mar- if we were writing a novel, we'd need to we'd, we'd need to go there, right? A modern editor would be like, okay, who is this Ulfius guy, right? I, I'm like, he's like a cipher to me. We need to know more about that. We're not going to get more answers to those kinds of questions. That's just, it's not, not only is it not how Maori thinks, that's just not the medieval literature way. This is not, those are not the questions that medieval people are interested in. Remember um, that by means phrase that he tends to use, right? Medievals were big on focusing on the stuff that they thought was important and just not caring about the rest. Um, we're big on like knowing the whole picture, even if it doesn't matter, right? Of uh, knowing uh, people's motivations, even if they don't matter. Uh, So anyway, yeah. There will be lots and lots of questions that we do not know the answers to. uh, And um, um, we're just going to have to live with that. And there will be lots of random people that will come wandering through the scene and you're like, where did they come from? And why are they doing what they're doing? And you're just never going to get an answer to that question. So you have to reconcile yourself to that fact. Um, yeah, good. Okay. Anyway, um, uh, James, great question. Does little ado to tell him what is little ado to tell him means? Okay. So, um, Uh, so Merlin asked Ulfius whom he sought, and he said, Ulf, Ulfius said that he had little ado to tell him. Um, I believe that means, I'm not going to tell you. Like, is, uh, that, I, I would translate that as, why should I tell you? He's in a beggar's array, right? Merlin is in rags, on foot and in rags. And so here's Sir Ulfius, right? The noble Knecht. So he's he's noble, right? Um, whatever noble means, it certainly means he is of noble birth, right? So, uh, unquestionably, he is uh, uh, of of high parentage. Um, oh, and I'm sorry, that reminds me, and I missed this before. Somebody was asking me what the word height meant. Um, H-Y, uh, it was in with the cast dolls, right? Yes, hicht. One hicht, tintagel. It just means named. Named. Hicht means named. Um, what are they called? They're called tintagel. And they're called Terrabil. Uh So yeah, Hicht means uh, means named. That's important. Um, sorry, I just like vaguely remembered that passing me by before. Um, okay, so uh, yeah, so here he goes riding past, and there's a beggar dude, right? A beggar on foot in rags who speaks up to this knight riding past him, and is like, "Hey, who are you looking for?" Right? And Ophius's response is a very sensible response, right? What business do I have telling you? Or what business do you have asking me? Right? You know, so he's telling him, like, mind your own business, right? I'm a knight. Who are you? Uh, and Merlin's response is then, I know whom thou seekest, for you seek Merlin. Therefore seek no farther, for I am he. And if King Uther will well reward me and be sworn, he shall be so. He then reveals, A, who he is, and I know who you are, and I know what message you're carrying, and I know what King Uther wants already, 
right? Um, so Merlin proves himself right away. So, so, um, yeah, Stephen says, okay, in fairy tales I'm used to, insulting or dismissing someone dressed as a beggar is always bad news. Merlin doesn't seem to have a problem with it. Yeah, yes, Stephen, you're right. Um, the fact that Ulfius is riding past, um, that Ulfius is riding past this beggar dude, right, and disses him first, sounds, and the beggar dude turns out to be Merlin in disguise. That sounds like the beginning of a fairy tale, right? And Stephen, you're absolutely right about the direction it looks like that fairy tale is going. Um, this is looking bad for Ulfius. He's about to have some curse placed upon him or something, right? You'd think, right? Um, but no, it doesn't go that way. So here we have this free-floating fairy tale element it would seem this is not not for the last time are we going to encounter this sort of thing and it is no coincidence that it's merlin who is connected with this right what is the connection between merlin and the fairy tale tradition it's not just the beggar in disgu- the disguise is a beggar thing right He then immediately says, uh, I will do what Uther says if he will be sworn to fulfill my desire. I'll give him what he desires if he will promise in advance to give me whatever I will ask of him. And again, Stephen, right? If you've read fairy tales, you're like, don't do it, Uther. No. Oh, my goodness. That is always a bad idea. Um, But that's exactly like what a fairy tale person who might dress as a beggar might say. Right? Um, uh, And Ophius says, There shall be nothing reasonable, but thou shalt have thy desire. So notice he does try to put a proviso on it. He's like, okay, I'm sure Uther will give you anything, anything that's reasonable. He doesn't promise anything unto the half of my kingdom, Jennifer. Exactly. It's exactly what uh, Ophius does not say on Uther's um, behalf. Uh, Stephen thinks that Ulfius hasn't read the right kind of books. Uh, that seems entirely possible, Stephen. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't know what kind of books he read. He presumably hasn't read the same books that Eustace has, but he certainly hasn't read the same books that the Pevensies have, I can tell you, um, as he doesn't seem to know uh, what's going on here. Um, anyway, Merlin says, He shall have his intent and desire, and therefore ride on your way, for I will not be long behind. Now, um... Notice what happens here. What, what's the business about not being long behind? What does that show? Right. Notice. Um, notice what happens there. Then Ulfius was glad and rode on more than a pass till that he came to King Uther Pendragon. More than a pass. That's 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 a, a big Maori phrase as well. Right. Um, uh to ride a pass means to ride at a normal pace, right? So to ride at more than a pass means to push your horse faster than the normal riding pace, right? So he is riding as fast as he can ride back to Uther, right? In order to tell him that he met with Merlin. Merlin in rags on foot, right? 
And Merlin says to him, Go back to Uther, I won't be long behind. So Ulfius takes off and rides his horse as fast as he can, leaving the dude on foot in the dust, right? And he gets to the king, and Uther says, Where is he? Sir, said Ulfius, he will not dwell long. Oh, I think he's probably right behind me, right? Therewithal, Ulfius was war where Merlin stood at the porch of the pavilions, and there he is, right? As soon as Ulfius delivers his message and the king says, where is he? There's Merlin, right? Right at the door. How did he get there? How did he keep up? How did he get there as fast as Ulfius did? Ulfius is galloping across country. Merlin was on foot. Poof, there he is at the door, right? Um... There is no attempt to explain this, and nobody's taken aback by this. So, what do we learn about Merlin in this passage, right? Well, we learn that Merlin is a problem solver, right? That you go to if you've—he's like a consultant, right? He's not a consulting detective. He's a consulting magician, right? So— if you've got an unusual problem that needs some kind of preternatural solution, Merlin is your guy, right? This is this is clearly um, uh, uh, how Ulfius seems to think of him. Um, he is famous for his knowledge. Ulfius does not bat an eye when the beggar says that he's Merlin and reveals that he already knows everything that Ulfius is going to tell him, he's like, he's glad. He's like, oh, great, excellent. Here we go, right? Um, and he starts to haggle with him right away. He's like, okay, right, I'm sure if it's reasonable, you'll get your, you'll get whatever you want. Um, and uh, <clears throat> And then we see that he has abilities beyond those of normal people. And we have no definition of that. We see no clear boundaries of that. Um, Why does he appear as a beggar at all? Why is he going around in a beggar's array? Why is he dressing as a beggar? We don't ever know. We'll never be told why he was dressed as a beggar. Um, If he seemed to be testing Ulfius, Ulfius seemed to fail the test, Stephen, as you pointed out, and yet no consequences came of that. Right. For reasons best known to himself, Merlin is dressed as a beggar and he's not about to tell us and neither is Mallory. Right. How did Merlin get there? Can he teleport himself? Can he turn himself into a bird and fly? We don't know. Right. But that's okay. But that's the point is that we don't know. Um, And but everybody seems to be okay with that. So we have these kinds these these things that are you know they come thick and fast these fairy tale motifs right about merlin he's right out of the old stories um but yet he's part of this world and everyone's fine with that um nobody seems to have any uh nobody seems to have any problem here um uh <laughs> Jennifer says the answer to anything Merlin does is because Merlin. Yeah, I mean that's so far that's exactly uh uh that's exactly what what we're getting. Uh Craig Brush says, "Dear modern authors, magic should be mysterious." Yeah, yeah, you're not going to have a problem with Mallory on that front, I can tell you. Um uh yeah, uh David says, "Does Mallory assume his audience knows about Merlin from other sources?" Yes. Um, 
Mallory assumes everybody already knows everything. I think that's fair. Um, that is, he's not making anything up. Um, he doesn't claim to make anything up. Uh, he doesn't assume that any of this or any of these characters are new to anybody. Um, so he, uh, he's, yeah, yeah. So he's not going to, he's not going to give us a big backstory to Merlin. Um, is there a lot that he's assuming? Well, we have to be careful there. Um, because it's not clear exactly which books he would be assuming everybody would know. Um, uh, but he doesn't need to introduce the character generally. Um, yeah, exactly, Tom. It's a whole different kind of creativity. Absolutely. This is not, uh, uh, he's not coming up with a new story, but he's also not just recycling stuff either. Um, Jennifer, fan fiction, exactly. Well, almost all of medieval, uh, medieval literature is fan fiction, Jennifer. That's exactly how it works. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so David says, I assume we can't assume that his audience thinks of exactly the same Merlin that we think of. Well, I mean, no, I mean, certainly our, our Merlin has been infected by, you know, by, uh, Disney cartoons and, and by, uh, all kinds of things. Right. So, um, there's there's lots of Merlins that we've gotten in modern film and book, um, but um, so so I mean obviously that's not going to be exactly the same, um, but yeah like I say just um, ditch your assumptions about Merlin about everything right and let's just see see what we get here let's build it from scratch, um, okay let's see let's do one more on the subject affair, and then we'll stop. We're almost done. When King Uther saw him, Merlin, that is, he said he was welcome. He sighed he was welcome. Sir, said Merlin, I knew all your hurt every day, every deal. So ye will be sworn unto me, as ye be a true king anointed, to fulfill my desire, ye shall have your desire. Then the king was sworn upon the four evangelists. Sire, said Merlin, this is my desire. The first night, the first night that ye shall lie by a grain, ye shall get a child on her. And one that is born, that it shall be delivered to me, for to nourish thereas I will have it. For it shall be your worship, and the child is a vile, as mickle as the child is worth. I will well, said the king, as thou wilt have it. So you meet a beggar, and the beggar turns out to be a wizard in disguise, but you've dissed the beggar, right? And he turns out to be a wizard in disguise. And then he says, I will grant you all your desire if you promise me in advance to give me what I desire. And then the king says, oh yeah, no problem. I'll swear an oath on that. And then he says, great. What I want is your firstborn child, right? If you would just deliver to me your firstborn child and I will take him away uh, uh, where you will never see him again. I mean, again, right? Like, what books have they read? <laughs> I mean, I, Merlin is like a string of fairy tale cliches. And yet none of it, none of it is, it's like Merlin's the only one who has read these books, right? Um, it's um, kind of, 
amazing, <laughs> actually. But notice a couple things here. Uh, first of all, Merlin seems to agree with the I won't ask for anything unreasonable clause that Ulfius had suggested. And secondly, he doesn't just ask. He doesn't ask for the chi- for his firstborn child in the way you might expect a fairy to ask for your firstborn child, right? Um, he does ask him to give him his child um, to nourish where he will have it, right? So I will, I will decide where to nourish it. I'm going to take it off on my own um, and make my own decisions about it. But he immediately qualifies it. It shall be your worship and the child's avail, as mickle as the child is worth. It's going to be good for you. Right, it's going to be for your worship. So your your praise, your reputation, is gonna is gonna grow because of this, right? So it's gonna it's gonna work out for you, and it will be for the help of the child. It will be for the child is a vile. Um, so it's 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 gonna be your reputation will be improved by this. It will help the child as mickle as the child is worth, as great as the as much as as great as the child is worth, right? Um, I, I, it's going to be, so he's doing this for the child's benefit, right? Uh, and it's going to help you. So on the one hand, this sounds like a traditional, like Rumpelstiltskin kind of bargain, right? Except it's not at all. Has, has even Merlin read the right books, right? Does even Merlin realize the kind of book that he, uh, that he sounds like he's in? Um, uh, uh, is he still dressed as a beggar, by the way? I'm not really sure. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, yeah. So we have the, all of these connections with the fairy tale tradition, and yet that doesn't seem to be how it's working. We get a sense of the fairy otherness about Merlin. There's something not normal about how he operates, right? We can see that for sure. And he talks kind of like a fairy. He asks, but he also doesn't talk quite like a fairy, right? Um, he's instead also... Act, so he he's acting here half like mysterious fairy Rumpelstiltskin dude and half like wise counselor, right? Um, I am privy to information that you are not. And I know that it will be best both for you and for the child if I take the child away and raise him in secret so that nobody knows who he is, right? Um, because as mickle as the child is worth, as much as the child is worth, and I think his implication here is the child is worth a lot, right? This is an important child that you are going to beget. First of all, I'm going to start off just by telling you the future because, right? Because Merlin, right? Um, so... When you sleep with a grain, you're going to get her with child. You're going to beget a child then, and it's in your best interest and the child's best interest if you give it to me and let me raise it uh, because it's going to be a very worthy child. Um, and uh, and this will, this will protect it. Um, <laughs> Stephen says, is Merlin saying he doesn't think Uther would be a good dad? Merlin is saying nothing of the reason at all, right? Um, there could be lots of reasons why it would be to your worship and the child is a vile. Um, 
I would assume it doesn't mean that he says you're going to wreck this kid if you raise him yourself because you're you're hopeless as a dad. That presumably would not be for his worship, right, to, for that to be known. Um, I'm going to raise this kid because, dang, you can't be trusted with children is probably not to his worship, right? Uh, so that probably wouldn't be it. But but again, he doesn't give any reason, right? Um, uh yeah, yeah. Now, I agree with you, Pam, that it's not that surprising that Uther gives in to this. But I would say to be careful here. Um, on the one hand, yeah, you're right. Uther is thinking, uh, 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 he's he's doing most of his thinking with his nether regions here, right? He, he's interested in sleeping with a grain, and that's what he's in this for. Um, so he doesn't seem to care too much. Um, he's focused on his, uh, love for the fairy grain and, uh, uh, is not bothered. It seems by what happens with the child, but this is not a typical fairy bargain on his side either. If Merlin were fully playing the fairy card, right? If he were just coming in as mysterious elfish dude saying, I shall mysteriously grant your request and make this magically possible, but you have to give me your child. And he was like, yes, I shall do that bargain and not care about the consequences. Then that would be just like what would happen in a fairy tale. Right. Um, And he would. And usually when you do that, you know, when you are uh, uh, making a a deal for selfish and short sighted gain um, uh, uh, without thinking through what the consequence is going to mean later on. Normally, that doesn't turn out well for you in a fairy tale. Right. Right. But again, that isn't what Merlin said, and that isn't how the king receives it. He has been given reassurance that it will be to his worship and the child's avail. So he's not saying, I'm going to choose the satisfaction of my sexual desire over the well-being of my child. He's been told that it is for the well-being of his child and for his personal reputation that he gives. So it was a win-win for Uther, right? He gets the woman he desires, and it's going to be for his worship and the benefit of the child. Right? What's to say no to? I mean, this is this is perfect. This is perfect. Um, and so, thus, it is in that way totally unlike the uh, normal fairy tale bargain. And so, therefore, the whole fairy tale rationale here, the whole fairy tale morality doesn't really seem to apply. Um, yeah, and Matt, Matt, you're absolutely right. It certainly will be to his great worship, right? Um, uh, the only reason King anyone is, the only reason we're reading about what King Uther did, right, is because of the child that he's going to beget, right? Um, yeah, yeah. No, Merlin is going to be proved true, as will generally happen. Um yeah. Oh, no, Lee, great question. Um, uh, she's a question about, I know your heart. I know your, your heart every deal. Um, every deal, that means, uh, so deal, it means like every, every bit, uh, every part, uh, to every extent. Um, uh, like you can also say, you say, uh, he's saying, I know this thing every deal. You can say, I like something every deal. Um, uh, yeah, it means every little bit, basically. Uh, I don't know exactly what a deal is, if a deal is like a piece of something or something like that, but that's the sense of it. Um, 
I know your heart, every deal. I, I know, I know, I know every, everything about your heart. I know every, every bit of it, every little bit. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, Stephen says, were those sorts of fairy tales around at this time or were they a later invention? There were fairy tales like this around at that time. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Stephen, that's right. Um, deal in the sense of there's a good deal more I could say, right? Uh, yes, there's a good bit more. Yes, yes. I, that, the, that sense of, this sense of the word deal does survive in our use of the modern spelling D-E-A-L uh, in that way. Um, good, good. Okay. Um, okay, let's, uh, let's stop here. Let's stop here, uh, because it's late, uh, and we should stop. Okay. So we will, we will finish that. We will look at the story of the, uh, of the actual conception, right? Uh, 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 and what I want you to be thinking about Notice what Maori draws our attention to here, right? One of the things that's really important for us to come to do is to get in the habit not of looking at what we care about, right? Not at asking about the things that we're interested in, but paying attention. We can do that, of course, but to pay attention to what is the text interested in? What is Maori interested in, right? What does he focus on and draw attention to in the story of the conception of Arthur. And then we're going to move on to the famous drawing of the sword from the stone, um, which will not be what you quite think it is. Probably there are a bunch of things about the drawing of the sword from the stone, which are uh, perhaps surprising if you approach it from a uh, modern perspective. Um, But uh, good. Okay. So uh, we'll pick up. So we'll, 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 we'll finish this section. You will notice that the reading for next week is longer. I'm asking you to read about uh, a little more than twice as much uh, as we read for this week. And I'll ask you to read a little more than twice as much again for the week after that. So we're going to pick up and do longer sections and we're not going to go and through, read it practically paragraph by paragraph every week. I'm already expecting people to be talking about how at the pace we're going right now, having talked about a page and a half tonight or almost two full pages, uh, that we're on pace to take like, you know, seven years to get through, uh, Maori. We're going to accelerate. We're going to do this Mythgard Academy style, not exploring the Lord of the Rings style. Um, but I'm deliberately going slowly on purpose for the sake of acclimating ourselves, not only to Mallory's language and figures of speech, uh, but to his whole world. I want to I want to see where we are at the beginning of the story. It's so important for us to begin to orient ourselves and then we'll we'll accelerate and uh, and move a little faster as we go. So. All right. Thank you guys very much for joining me. I will see you guys next week. Um, we should be... The schedule is accurate, as I said, through August. Um, so th- for the first six weeks, anyway, are totally accurate um, on the webinar schedule. Um, I will we'll, we'll move on and map out the next bit after that, probably in August. I am going to be away for the first full week of August. So whichever day that is the 7th or something like that of August. Um, I'll be away then. Um, but, uh, but I think that, uh, since it's Wednesday night, our schedule will be not disrupted by Bay Moot when, uh, I go out to California. So that'll be good. Anyway, thanks everybody. See you guys next week. Bye now.